This is the Master Marketer Show, powered by Proofpoint Marketing. Each week, we explore the mindsets, skill sets, and tool sets the top B2B marketers use to drive results. Gain actionable insights, one masterful, revenue-generating success story at a time. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Master Marketer Show. Today, we have Amrita Mather with us today, and Amrita is the VP of Marketing at Superside. And we're going to talk about some interesting stuff today. Uh, you know, I think most of us in the marketing space can probably agree the the value of creative in our marketing has definitely gotten a lot more love, I think, lately with things that have been going on and whatnot. Um, maybe we'll get into some of the AI stuff too, if, mm-hmm. if we have time and it makes sense. But even outside of that, I think some of the things we are seeing is it's kind of back to basics of creative matters, creative concepts matter, et cetera. So we're going to talk about that uh, amongst other things. So Rita, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to do this. Yeah, it's been a conversation several months in the making. We're excited to have it. So uh, let, let's dive in. I mean, you've you've been at Superside for, for a little while. You've uh, helped them grow to a, a you know, very significant ARR at this point. And, you know, talking to you prior to this, you have, you put a lot of value in creative. So I'd love to just open it up pretty loose there and tell us more about that. How, how do you think about creative as a whole, as a, as a mark inside the marketing function? Yeah, for sure. Well, let me just first admit that I don't think I had this view or this point of view or this mindset before I joined Superside and I've worked in B2B software my whole life. Um, and I, and it's weird because, you know, even like the best tech companies, they all kind of have this like weird ubiquitous look. There's a whole meme about this and a whole conversation about this. I'm sure you've seen it, but you know, they all just kind of have the same format. Every website kind of looks the same, so on and so forth. So just having come from B2B tech, I, I think, I think that industry and like my peers, we're all just so focused on efficiency and conversion and all of this stuff that we actually lose sight of maybe what ultimately matters, which is how do you become memorable? How do you create a great brand sentiment? Um, you know, from, from the first touch point all the way to like they becoming a customer and so on and so forth. And then how do you aid recall? I mean, and I feel like consumer goods companies figured this out a long, long time ago, right? Like this is all what like Coca-Cola and all these guys talk about Nike, right? They get it, but somehow tech just hasn't gotten there. Because like of that, I, I, I suspect my hypothesis is it's this like hyper focus on efficiency and conversion and whatnot that takes away from that. So I'll admit that I think I was in the same camp until I got to Superside. And then I started talking to our customers. I mean, when I joined, we had no customers, but then as people started coming onto our platform and I started talking to them and writing case studies and just understanding their stories and how they're using it and what results have they've gotten and how creative has actually either directly or in many cases indirectly 
help them outperform their own expectations. Like my head was like literally exploding. And I was like, I need this on my team. Like, why are we here like providing this service to other companies and we ourselves aren't using it? So the first thing I did is I got on a superside plan myself, right? As like, uh, we had like a three person team with no like dedicated design or video um, talent on the team or animation talent on the team. So we got on the superside plan and the rest is history. I so I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because I started my career um, more on the B2C side, you know, um, consumer packaged goods, B2C, et cetera, e-com. And I worked tremendous. Actually, the, the beginning part of my career, I worked with a lot of creative teams. I worked I worked with a small agency, a small advertising agency um, that was led and founded by the art, the creative director. Um, so I have a lot of experience and I love working with creative teams. When I, when I evolved in my career and started focusing more on B2B, it was like a stark, it's like you fell off the cliff, right? You fell into the black hole, like you said, Amrita, of like no design, no creative, kind of blah. Every website was like ugly. You know, what do you think? Now, there's a big shift, and I'd love to talk to you about that. There's there's a lot of tech companies, especially SaaS. You know, SaaS is the darling in the B2B world for sure. But we like to focus on and we like to um, speak to uh, oftentimes non-SaaS marketers because they get a lot of love. And there's a lot of other B2B marketers out there that need as much love as well. What do you think the mindset needs to be for B2B marketing leaders, so specifically like VP or director level and above when it comes to creative today? What do you think, what do you think their mindset is now? And what do you think their mindset needs to be to change, to really stand out and, 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 and have a better, you know, brand experience for their ICP? Yeah. I mean, so much to unpack here, but a couple of things come to mind. I, I, and, and, you know, I have, I have friends and peers who are in similar roles as myself at different companies. So we, we chat a lot and the, the couple, a couple of interesting things come up and this is not like meant as disparagement, right? Like everyone has their lens and they're in this like unique niche or space. And a lot of it comes from there, but I'd say like the one thing that I've noticed is even though people recognize the need for good creative, I think everyone just still sees it as a lever for something very specific could be, growth or could be um lever for oh you know reducing cac for your advertising campaigns or lever for uh you know aiding conversions on your blog or like it's a, it's it's always something like very specific oh i need better creative to do this one thing and that's okay that's a great starting point but it's so much more than that and i don't i don't know if there's a great word or phrase for this but it's almost like like people just need to zoom out and look at the entire buyer journey holistically and know what the impact of creative across all of those touch points are, not only until they become a customer, but also like they become an evangelist and advocate for your brand and how to best enable that. And by touch point, like it literally means everything, your marketing, your sales, like even like, you know, like the little collateral that someone might leave behind after your first demo or call like that, um, you know, if you have a freemium model or you have a trial of some kind, like what is the product experience? Uh, what is the creative experience inside that product experience? 
Um, you know, Bill Makaitis, who was the CMO at Slack and I believe CMO at Zendesk, um, says this, I think he has this way of explaining this, but he's like, it, you know, you don't, you don't want to go to a, go into a sterile environment. You don't want to be in a hospital. Like we, we want to, we, everyone wants like a little bit of fun and a little bit of surprise and delight. And as a user or a customer, you might not actually consciously be thinking of that, but those little um, those little experiences, if, especially if it's like very well-rounded around someone's selfish desires or pain points or needs, if it's orchestrated really well, that can actually give you like that perfect dopamine hit after dopamine hit after dopamine hit. And that's what ultimately makes you sticky to your brand, your company, your product. So yeah, just really zooming out and, and thinking about it holistically. And it's a different mindset, I would say, because a lot of the time, especially B2B marketers, uh, I mean, any marketer really, but B2B marketers in particular that are so focused on revenue and pipeline. And don't get me wrong, all of that is so important. You know, revenue, pipeline, uh, I'm not at all advocating that marketers shouldn't put their focus there. But it does require a different mindset to some of the things that you were talking about, about you know, thinking through the experience, thinking through uh, those leave behinds or that that little surprise and delight that might be in the form of, um, you know, some kind of a, a postcard or a thank you note or or a gift or a branded swag or um, or even something that can be delightful on someone's website, because oftentimes you look at B2B websites, especially in, you know, um SaaS, but also also manufacturing and um, consulting firms, consulting groups, the websites become very formulaic. You know, it ha you have to have this with this and this call to action in this way. It's it's a formula. Yeah. And I think that the mindset here for for these marketing leaders in uh, in the B two B space is yes, follow the formula. Yes, focus on pipeline and revenue but also leave room for delight, leave room for brand, a branded experience that will set you apart from your counterpoints. Yeah. And that can lead to revenue. I mean, I think, I think it's, it does lead to revenue. It does lead to revenue. We've, I mean, there are some things that are extremely measurable where, and I can walk through some examples of that and some that are less measurable, but you can kind of see the effects of that through anecdotal evidence. Um, one silly example, I just love this example because it was kind of accidental, but as part of our brand, we have this, like, we have these like little figures, it, you know, our, our brand is like very like space themed. Cause like yeah. part of what we're selling is like this, like magical place, like where you just like plug stuff in and then you get the stuff out. Right. So the whole brand ethos is like magical, a little bit out of this world. Right. That, so it's got this like space theme. Um, we have this caricature, this like little illustration for uh, a character that's basically like a dog, but he's in space and he's got the astronaut helmet on him. Uh, and we internally just call him Astropup, like that's our pet name for him. And Astropup was heavily featured um, in our advertising. And we spend something like $200,000 a month on advertising various forms. So, you know, 100K of that goes to like something like Instagram, Facebook. So ton of people saw Astropup, right? And like lots of people commented, oh my God, that's so cute, whatever, right? Maybe it helped, you know, um, bring some signups and customers and maybe didn't, whatever. But there was like some good love for Astropup. 
and then started using AstroPup in strategic places on the website. And people were like, literally, they were saying it in sales calls. They would get on a call with a sales rep, right? They've booked a demo. They're walking. They're like, oh my God, when I booked this demo and I saw the thank you email come through with the invite and AstroPup was in there, like they weren't using those words, but you know, I'm paraphrasing. Like they, it's like an Easter egg and they've connected the dots on this like little thing across this entire sort of buying journey, right? They three steps in or four steps in. So Whoa. that's an example of, like serendipity and the little head and all of that brand appeal. And now it's like easier to sell this person. It's an awesome example, actually, right? One of the things you mentioned earlier uh, is you said, you know, making, making it memorable. And we like to talk about, uh, you know, building affinity rather than just awareness. Cause you can buy awareness. You can't buy affinity. You can't buy mm. that spontaneous. Oh my God, this is awesome. That's affinity. Uh, but the other thing that you mentioned uh, along with that, with this example is, uh, and I was just talking about this with somebody um, yesterday or the day before, you know, how often, how many commercials can you think of? They're like, Oh my God, that was such a funny commercial. I have no idea who this was for. Like, somebody posted about it like that, that, that Geico camel commercial from back in the day yeah. on LinkedIn. And that's what spurred my conversation with somebody uh, about something similar. But in your case, it's, they did make the connection, right? And I think that's that, that memorable piece. It's not, it's little and it's like, how, how much of the sale is influenced by that. But I think it, it does make a difference for sure. Yeah. Right? And I think that's the, to me, what I'm taking away from this and sort of my, my mindset in general has been, it's that how do you make something that's both memorable and resonates? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like that's memorable. where creative as a whole comes in. It's not just, yes, it's going to help, like you said, with CAC and with, uh, you know, improving conversion rates and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the why it works is because of these things. It's memorable, it's memorable and it resonates. Yeah, exactly. And that actually, that example was so amazing for us because it actually allowed us to more deliberately have these conversations internally within the marketing and creative teams together to like talk about, oh my God, how do we create more of that? I think if that hadn't happened, maybe we wouldn't have prioritized it the same way. But now we have these like you know, we call them, I mean, I, I, at least in my head, I call them like these like serendipity meetings. Like how do we, how do we create these like moments of like connection, emotional connection, and just like people feeling like they're in the right place. You know, I don't know how I ended up here, but I feel like I'm in the right place. This is going to work out for me, you know? And, and that comes from, you know, often in our win-loss analysis and talking with customers, one of the things that came through was that a lot of people actually kind of come to Superside as the last ditch effort to make this work, mm-hmm. you know? So they've maybe, maybe they have like an internal team, maybe good internal team, but they're burnt out. Maybe they're demotivated. Maybe there's like requests for design coming at them from the wazoo and they're just like totally like done and fried. And maybe they tried some freelancers. Maybe they tried an agency, whatever, right? They've, they've gone through the ringer. Something's not worked for them. So they kind of end up at Superside. And so, they're already so defeated, you know, by the time they come to us and they're so skeptical by the time they come to us. Like we, we just knew that we had to kind of provide some fun and enrichment and, and, you know, anything that would give them some confidence. So let's talk about that a little bit. 
I have this is, this is where we start fighting who gets to ask a question first. <laughs> uh, I, well, I don't know what you're going to say. We might be on the same page here, Mike. Let, let me let me jump in here quick. With we'll find out. Because I have a really a burning thought. So kind of along the lines of what you were saying, Amrita, um, what I have been seeing and hearing with my clients and with just rumblings on LinkedIn is that, you know, this idea that, oh, creative is a commodity, right? Mm -hmm. I can go, and you hear this all the time. Oh, I can go to the Philippines and get cheap labor. I can go offshore. I can go to Mexico. I can, I can go outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. on Upwork, on Etsy, on any number of design platforms. Um, and there are others, you know, similar models to SuperSide that exist yeah. that maybe operate with a slightly different, um, you know, business model, but same, same, yeah. more or less same, um, idea, uh, you know, and, and I, and I hear this a lot with the leadership team, you know, and, and, and in particular, um, the, let's say that the CEO level or the CFO or the CRO level where they're like, Oh, creative, you know, we can just, we don't need to spend this money. We can allocate the dollars of elsewhere. Um, yeah. Maybe they understand brand, right? They maybe understand branding and the value of, okay, we need to have a sexy brand. Let's spend money there. Yeah. But then everything else sort of gets the, uh, the ugly step, the, the ugly stepsister treatment, right? Oh, well, we spent the money in the brand. We don't need, we don't need this ongoing um, yeah. expense for creative. And then there's this, there's this um, very like, I think, ill-founded notion that, we can get it cheap. We can do it cheap. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you change somebody's mindset around that? Because that that really does, you know, it does affect them where it hurts, right? Where their wallet is. And um, we we hear that with our clients. You know, our clients. We we currently at Proofpoint, we don't offer um, creative services in house. We partner with a number of trusted sources and yeah. we bring that to our clients as needed yeah. but oftentimes we are met with this idea of well i can just get it on the cheap yeah How i can just... change somebody's mindset i mean and and is that something that you have consistently heard as well in your position we have i mean you've, you've kind of said two things here um i think one the first piece is does does anyone outside marketing and creative understand the need for consistent creative that is, and it's not just about good, like what is good creative ultimately? I, I ask myself this question all the time and, to, and it's core to like how, why SuperSide exists. Good isn't like beautiful. Good isn't simply that something that, oh, you know, ran, you ran an A-B test and it worked, you know, it's none of, it's none of those things in isolation. Ideally, in the ideal world, good is if you think of the classic triangle of speed, quality, price, right? Ideally, good creative checks all those boxes. It's done in a speedy manner. So you get it when you need it. You know, you're not like waiting endlessly, which is like the bane of most marketers existence these days. You talk to anybody in content marketing, anybody in a performance marketing role. First thing they'll complain about is it just takes like weeks and weeks and weeks for me to get creative and I can't move fast enough, right? So getting in a speedy manner, getting it in a in a way that is reliable and at a price point that is predictable, doesn't have to be cheap, doesn't have to be expensive. Those are like cheap and expensive are subjective. Like it kind of, everyone has their own budget and how they think about their market, but are, is it predictable? Did you expect for that thing to cost $2,000 or did you expect for that thing to cost $200, right? 
Um, and then, and then of course, like the quality and quality is extremely debatable, but I would say quality is as good as the insights and the briefing that you gave. So if you were insightful about, Hey, you know, I need, uh, I need this illustration that is like a beacon of hope. And I think that needs to be a lighthouse. Like that is very specific. But if you just said, hey, I need something that looks like a beacon of hope, that leaves the creative uh, options to kind of, you know, show and do some concepting work and come up with like a lot of different options, right? And something that comes out of that could be great quality or something that comes out of that could be poor quality if it didn't hit the mark in the buyer's mind. So really like good creative is all of those things. And even better if it can be done at scale. And that's where AI and emerging market labor can be really helpful for North American, Western European companies. And that's exactly what SuperSight is built on, right? So all our creatives are, almost all of them are in emerging markets. They are the top creatives in those markets. We have huge hubs in South Africa, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, a few other places, but those are our typical hubs. And we've just found a great way to find the best creatives. We bring them on, we upskill them, we have like a really good system for which accounts we put them on and then we like recycle them quite often. So there's like a whole, you know, whole, um, I guess, like rubric around how we how we do that and some method to the madness. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, just build a lot of tools that allow for efficiency, both on the customer side, but also on the creator side. So our our point of view on can you find cheaper creative, I don't know, talent elsewhere. Yeah, sure. But it's like how you deploy that. Like, do you, if you're the CMO, let's say you're the CMO of a startup or let's say not a startup, you're the, you're the CMO of some, you know, company that has had traction. You understand the value of creative, but obviously you're very like, you know, cost minded. So you want to find the best bang for your buck. I get that. Uh, do you have the time to be managing a freelancer on Fiverr? Do you have the time to be finding an agency, evaluating them, um, figuring out, you know, what they're good at, what they're not, et cetera. And most agencies are like, you know, most of the good ones at least are one trick pony. So they have a very deep specialization in a, in a couple of areas. So usually it'll be like, oh, we're really good at UX, right? Or we're really good at brand creation or we're really good at whatever, ad creative. And 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 SuperSide has like the full breadth of capabilities. That's the model that we've chosen to adapt. So there are places where we have chosen to play and there's places that we've chosen not to play. We are not a fit for a startup that's just looking for a little bit of project work here and there. That's not a great fit for us. But if you're like a scale up or like a mature company and you have all these programs in place and you need really high quality creative really fast and you need like a, there's like a proper established cadence and roadmap for it, we're a good fit in those situations. So the short answer is, yeah, you can find cheaper creative talent elsewhere, but then you have to find them. You have to do the vetting. You have to do the project managing. It's a lot of work. And like, if you're like 300 bucks an hour or 400 bucks an hour, I mean, it's really not a good use of your time. So it's like to pick your battles. Yeah. And one of the things that kind of comes to mind, you know, when we're talking, you know, commodity product, I sort of think of it like design, graphic design as a commodity. Creative is a premium. Mm. Yes. Can I quote you? That's, that's a great line. <laughs> right. So what, what, which are you offering? Um, and I want to, I want to put a pin in 
the kind of the tools and the AI conversation for a minute. One of the things I want to ask you is, you know, you mentioned, you know, people coming to you with teams that are maybe burnt out and things like that. Um, we, we, we see some of that as well. People kind of, when we have some of these conversations with clients or prospective clients or whatever, um, why do you think that happens? Like where, where does the burnout come from? Yeah. Oh man. Actually, there's so many reasons. There's, there's so much to unpack here that I ended up writing a whole guide on this and a whole ebook on this because it's a crazy problem. It's, it's very similar actually, um, to like the issues that engineering and design teams have, you know, so often in a, in a product team or engineering team, or sometimes product and engineering are the same team in most tech companies. And, and they have similar issues between engineering and design. And, and it's often because they're coming at the same problem with slightly different lenses. And very often the incentives aren't aligned. Uh, those are like the two big buckets of issues, but there's, there's a whole bunch of other issues, the way they talk, the language, the terminology, et cetera, et cetera. I'd say the core of the problem is that design teams, particularly if they're centralized across the whole company, um, you know, they are providing a service to various departments. That's how they've been set up. And they are treated like short order cooks, but you actually want Michelin star restaurant quality food. That's the core of the problem. Particularly, I love that analogy. I don't want to interrupt you, but I love that analogy. And that is so um, indicative of what we see and what we've heard from a number of people in our network and 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 in our orbit. Uh, and and I'd love to dig. I want I want you to finish your thought, but I'd love for us to dig into your case study, which is how you have structured your marketing team and how other leaders should be. Th- or, sorry, your creative team and how other leaders should be thinking about that. But I, I interrupted you. Please continue your thought. Yeah, no, not much else to say there, expect, except that there's like like some kind of weird expectation gap. You know, it's like, let's just throw like orders at them, right? We're going to bark orders at them. So you're like a line cook. But it's like, oh, when the eggs and scrambled eggs and sausages come out, you're just like, where's my steak? Or like, oh, whatever, right? It's just like, no, you just threw this at me like two seconds ago. Um, so it's it's like, it's the... It's the org structure. It's the treatment of this group. It's the expectation management. Um, and, and a lot of that is on the creatives themselves, right? How they manage expectations. And I think I think another thing that's not in anyone's control that's maybe even briefing the project or taking in the project, but it's, it comes from like the, the, again, like the org design and the way the business model functions. But the one thing that we've noticed is a recurring theme is there's not very direct uh, understanding in the whole company about what what are the key levers that can actually drive change. And those things aren't necessarily prioritized. So everything starts looking equal. So when, you know, one marketing person, number one, who's maybe in in charge of paid media versus marketing person, number two, who's maybe in charge of, let's say, content marketing, and then marketing number three, who's maybe trying to crack TikTok as a channel, like all these three marketers, all their requests, quote unquote, 
start looking the same. There's no way to like say like which one is more important. So if you have a finite set of resources, which is like every company on the planet, where do you begin? What do you actually put more money in? What is high stakes and what is not? Like none of that stuff is actually clear. Sometimes not even to the marketers who are making the ask. So that's that's like something that needs to be solved across the board. Um, and though and the the second thing which we've corrected for on our team, and I hope this is like a model for everybody, is you know everybody throws around these terms. Oh yeah, creatives need to have a seat at the table. It's like oh yeah, they should join our meetings. Sure. Of course, that's a table stake now, but it's so much more than that. It is, it is really using their skill set and their brains in the optimal way and understanding how to do that. So I'll give you an example of one of the things. We have two very key rituals on, on our team. We have a biweekly meeting between the ads team and the creative team. And there's a few people on the creative team that have been pseudo assigned to the ads team. So it's like this, like, you know, there's like whatever, like nine or 10 people on that, but there's like three people that routinely work on, on ads. And they're very familiar with the work that's been done. They're very familiar with the metrics, so on and so forth. So this biweekly meeting that happens one of like once a month, it's an ideation meeting on the second time in the month, it's more like a insights and analysis meeting that we do together live. And it all happens with the, the media team and the creative team, the three people that are assigned to this. Um, and I, I'd say, like, actually, it's funny because sometimes when I attend those meetings, like I'm, I'm usually not in those meetings. But when I am, a lot of the greatest ideas and the things that win the test, those are actually ideas that came from the creative team. Uh, and then and then the marketing team is able to, like, jump in and like kind of like help run through that and refine the idea a lot more to like fit with the jobs to be done and the bio persona and the pain points and whatnot. But the kernel of that idea often comes from the creative team. But those rituals have totally changed the game for us. For us, we've been able to bring down the CPL of a uh, what we call a top of funnel lead to $12, which and it used to be something like 90 when we started before these rituals started. So that's a clear indicator of this collaboration working. You know, that's like the clearest. There's more indicators, but this is the clearest. Wow. Um, yeah. And then there's like the second ritual, very similar, but more with the content marketing team, where that team really needs a lot of help on our offsite strategy and what that means. And like to pop off on Instagram Reels or TikTok or even like LinkedIn these days, like you, you, you you need some unique angles. It's not just like amazing copywriting or whatever it used to be like even a year ago. The, the game has totally changed. The algorithms have completely changed. Um, so you need uh, people that both understand the platform and both under, and understand the like just humans and, you know, how to stand out uh, and create like great brand sentiment. Well, so let's let's br briefly, uh, if you can describe the structure of your team in a little bit more detail, it's just more yeah. of a, a layup question that I got a maybe a deeper, more philosophical one to follow. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, so we've we've got the classical uh, functional setup, um, which actually I've begun to question. I actually, you know, that's a whole other podcast to be honest. Um, <laughs> but we we've got the classical functional setup. So we've got a growth team, which is 
search, paid media. They're like, a, I'd say a slightly more technical team. They work on our PLG stuff, you know, in product stuff, all of that, all of that kind of thing. Then we've got a demand gen team, which is more like thinking about campaigns, particularly campaigns that run for like several months across a number of audiences. Um, so designing those campaigns, thinking about that, what's our life cycle marketing? Um, and they also own ABM, which is a new effort for us. And then we've got a content marketing team, which is not, you know, again, everyone just, you know, deciphers content marketing differently. But for us, it is not things like copywriting. It is true content marketing. It's like creating guides, webinars, infographics, blog posts, video content, owning our socials, all of that stuff, right? So content marketing, social and community sits under content marketing as well. And then we've got a creative team. And so the creative team is the only real horizontal team and all the rest are like, I'd say like more vertical teams and creative services, if you want to use that word, but services, all of these teams, but we've tried to build very tight knit collaboration with two groups in particular. Right. And you, and you mentioned that the team, while it's more horizontal, you do sort of have people assigned, if you will, to some of these uh, sub functions. Exactly. Like I, I think of them as like tiger teams, you know, they're mm -hmm. like, they're like a SWAT team that's like there to like, whatever, reduce CAC. And it's like, okay, two people from the media team, three people from the creative team, one person from the influencer marketing team. Right. And they, they together try to solve that particular problem. That problem might be different in the next quarter and might be a different problem the following quarter, but it's like largely the same cohort. It's like some people call it a work stream. I call it a tiger team. So you mentioned my, my more philosophical question for you is, you know, you mentioned that in your current setup, kind of the seat at the table, some of these best ideas are coming from the creative team. Um, and you uh, led into that story by talking about, you know, leveraging the creative team's skill set to drive this. Talk a little bit more about that. I actually, so I, I have a design background. I'm a pretty bad designer, actually, as of, as of right now. Gabby's going to laugh. I did go to design school, though. Um, and so I understand the concept of, you know, design thinking, but I don't, I think the average person has no clue what that actually is yeah. and how it can be used. So I'm guessing that's, if I had to guess, that's what you're talking about. Ooh, yeah. Maybe not. You know, I'm I'm even just talking about something more rudimentary, which is just giving people like the headspace to like truly brainstorm and come up, you know, with the come up with ideas. Some might be good, some might be bad, but it's like low shoulders, low risk, like no one's watching. You can say whatever you want, you know, just kind of creating that environment where, where that's possible. And a lot of it comes from framing up the problem correctly. Like you kind of want it to be guardrailed, but you want it to be open-ended enough. Like using that same lighthouse analogy, like maybe the problem is, hey, we were looking for a you know creative treatment to showcase hope. And instead of saying, oh, that needs to be a lighthouse, you maybe don't say anything. And then the creative team can like fill in the blanks and concept a bit and provide like a lot of different ideas. Um, that, so it's it's a, it's a lot more rudimentary. And I think like something has to be said about like camaraderie on the team. Like I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough either, particularly in tech. But, you know, like magic is created, you know, on podcasts, like look at you two, right? Like and, and, and all sorts of shows. I mean, uh, some of the best like night television is like 
you know, there's always like this, the sidekick, you know, and like the host, you know, like David Letterman and the sidekick, like there's always like, there's something to be said about camaraderie and amazing content coming out of that. Cause you, you're there jamming with your buddy. You're there with your peers, your friends, you're having a good time. There's, it's like fun. It's not work, you know? So I think cultivating that in some way, you know, without being forced, you know, obviously like it's not possible everywhere and every time, but if it's, if you can cultivate that, that can be really magical. Yeah. For sure. And something else you mentioned um, that I think is worth pointing out is you talked about these teams working together or these people working together within uh, these teams is, you know, that the creatives, they know the data, they know the performance numbers. And I think there's this stereotype of creatives like, oh, math, like, no, no we, don't, we don't do math. We're creatives. We don't touch math. We don't want it. We don't know it. We don't want to know it. You know, and I even just saw uh, there's a, a an accountant friend of mine or acquaintance of mine, I should say, that posted something like, oh, you know, uh, like, how can you expect to, you know, know the taxes? You're just a creative, like, you know, it's kind of like tongue in cheek thing, but it sort of made me think about this exactly. It's like, oh, wait a second. A lot of these people, they might not be math whizzes by any means, but they're a lot smarter than you think. And if you just explained it to them and gave them a chance, I'm sure they'd be just fine with the numbers. Yeah. You just took the time to put it in front of them. Exactly. Like we're not asking them to like pull it and go in the tools and analyze it. Right. Like that, that's the performance marketing team's done that. They bring that to the table before that ritual happens. In fact, they send it in advance in a slide deck format. It's very consumable. Everyone gets it. You, you can skim it in five minutes and know the lay of the land. Everyone understands if you're on a, like our creative team is on the marketing team. Right. So we talk about these things all the time. And most people understand that like lead volume, CAC, like there's like a few leading indicators that are very important to us because they they tell us like if we're going to hit our revenue targets or not. And they get that and they just hear that over and over. And even if you've never heard them until you join the Superside team, like you would learn that very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's not even math. It's just like getting familiar with the terminology and it's our job to help ensure that everyone's on the same page. Well, we we are, I think that Mike and I have diverged a little bit from the structure of the show because we just enjoyed this topic. Um, but for our listeners who are so used to the uh, the structure that we bring to the show, I want to make sure that we are doing our justice to our listeners. So, Amrita, um, just to ground more me and Mike rather than you because... I was, I was going to go back to skill set, by okay, the way, so well, just throw that out there. We went off on a little tangent here. So we talked a lot about mindsets, and I think, I think that was a brilliant segment of the show, the mindset that you need to have to stand out and the mindset that, uh, that, 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 that marketing leaders today should be adopting as it relates to creative. Um, we talked a little bit about skill set here, which is the fact that um, you are pairing up different skill sets across your team and you're giving the creative um, team members a seat at the table, which I think is, is fantastic. You also talked about the skill set that, you know, creatives may not necessarily know how to pull the data, but they can understand the data. And that is a skill set that can be cultivated, but should also be instilled with your creative team and across other marketers on the team. Um, Mike, is there anything on skill set that you want to dig into or shall we move into tool sets here? I was going to, my, my, I guess, last question was going to be more like, let, let's say 
on your perform, like whoever's leading up your performance team or your management team or any one of the the, the subdisciplines that you that you mentioned having. What are the skill sets that they need to have to effectively work with their creative counterparts? Ooh, hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, you know what? I have to admit that I don't think it was top of mind when we started building the team to screen for that. But I think actually we're lucky that in this day and age, most performance marketers know that the only way to like win in performance marketing is through standout creative. Like they get that. It's like, it's common knowledge in performance marketing now. Right. So they kind of, everybody comes with that lens and they have a lot of respect. In SaaS it is. I don't think that's actually the case in a lot of other industries, but that's a whole different conversation. Okay. Okay, cool. (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah, we have some like e-commerce customers and stuff. Yeah. Like I think a few industries definitely get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a fair comment. So a lot of them have respect for that group and that skill set and and they get it. And actually all of these rituals were set up by our head of performance marketing, um, Andy. And like, yeah, he, he, like he gets it. Like, so that there was like no, there's no discovery or explaining to be done there. Um, perhaps less so in other parts of marketing. And I think like, you know, we've been able to prove to ourselves that this is like, uh, the, this is like a really important lever and we should treat it as such. And I'd say like one, one thing that we've tried to cultivate at least consciously is this idea of like communicating what your needs are in a way that is structured. But like, like I said earlier, like leaves room for some interpretation. And I had to learn that the hard way too. Like I, I can sometimes be too prescriptive, you know, and because I have like maybe an idea in my head or or whatever. And I've kind of tried to turn that off, like kind of just like take a step back. It's like, no, it could probably be done another way. And that's not necessarily what I have in my head. And maybe there's three good answers here, right? So um, learning that the hard way, um, constantly like saying the same thing over and over. Our creative director, like he's just like, he just like will not, he won't, he'll just send it back. Like if it's like a brief, he'll just send it back and he'll just say like, oh, it's too prescriptive, like lighten it up or whatever, right? So um, we've just all learned that on the job, I'd say. Let's talk a little bit about tool sets. And I think we can take this in a lot of different directions. Um, there's. I have a particular direction I want to go. Okay, well, l- let me finish my thought here. I mean, there's there's the there's the obvious direction, which is okay. What are the tool sets that great creative teams need to have? Well, that's table stakes. We don't need we we could talk about it, but I don't know that 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 that's gonna really elicit major um, light bulbs because I think I think most people in marketing today have a fairly good idea of what the basic tool sets are for a creative team. But let's, I, I, I want to take it in a different direction. Um, when we think about B2B companies that are either outsourcing to a creative company or creative team or, 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 or a service like Superside, um, or if they're building an internal creative team, what are the tool sets that these marketing leaders need to think about beyond the basic creative tools, but other tools that allow for more uh, collaboration, communication, 
And like you said earlier, allowing for the creatives to have a seat at the table. You know, the answer, I think, is actually not a classical tool, but it's more like a role, a job team. There's a emerging role called some some companies call it design ops. Some people call it creative ops. Um, Airbnb has an entire design ops department that they have chosen not to report into the design department. They are actually at the same level. So there's a design team and there's a design ops team. And, you know, most companies that, that, you know, have a lot of design needs um, have a design ops person, sometimes two, sometimes three, depending on the size of the team, whose entire job is to do exactly what you just described. You know, what is the tooling? What are the jobs to be done? Oh, by the way, is this, uh, is, what is the prioritization of this? Are we doing this in-house or are we outsourcing this? Uh, how can I scale this? By the way, what's the budget? Every, all of that stuff. There's actually a crazy stat out there. Um, I think McKinsey did this research. I think it was them. Uh, most designers spend only 40% of their time designing. Isn't that crazy? Like the rest of the time is like triaging, figuring out what the hell is going on, reporting, pitching sometimes if you work at an agency, right? Spend their time on all sorts of nonsense. So the design ops person's job is essentially to get them to 100% utilization as close as possible. It's not going to be 100, but as close as possible. When I was writing this design dysfunctions book that I mentioned earlier, one of the customers I interviewed uh, was this company called Intercom, Um, you know, big SaaS darling, been around for a while, have done amazing, have always been known for their brand and their quirkiness and all of this stuff. And I was chatting with uh, one of the design ops people on that team. And I thought she was the only one. And she ended up telling me that their design team was 14 people. One was the head of design. One was obviously her. And you know, it was like nine designers and everybody else was also a design ops professional. So they had four design ops people on a team of 14 which is a crazy ratio. I'd never seen that. Like Amazon, which is another big customer of ours, like they would have like a hundred designers and one design ops person, right? Or they would call them something else like traffic manager. They had these weird titles. But anyway, I was like, oh my God, you have four out of 14 dedicated to design ops. And she said, yeah. She's like, this is how we scale. This is how we have so much efficiency on this team. We get so much shit done. We ship so much. She's like, everyone's in awe because we just like are constantly on that and figuring that out. So their ratio was particularly high. I suspect Airbnb's ratio is particularly high, given that they have a whole different department as well. Um, but even if it's not that level of ratio, having a design ops person on the team or creative ops or what, you know, it's, it's like it's like a project manager on crack is how I think of it, but like very specific to design. Um, having that person on the team can be a huge unlock for efficiency and cost management and utilization of the actual talent of the team. It's funny that's you mentioned project management. That's sort of that's exactly where my head was going because right. that's how our teams get as much done as they do. Is we have really good project managers that take a lot of load off their plate when it comes to you know trafficking and all this kind of traditional stuff. But then yeah. you know some client communication and task management timelines. Yeah. 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 And, I'm and- learning. So I did not know that the role or that the, the word design ops existed in my mind, you know, to me in a more traditional setting, that's, you know, like you said, a traffic manager, a project coordinator, design coordinator. But I really like this idea of design ops because it's really elevating the the role. And I think 
in the experience that I had very early in my career in, a, in an ad agency, the traffic person was the least loved person yeah. in the account because yeah. everybody was like, oh, here they come. They're going to ask me for this. They're going to ask me for that. I got to do. They were given so little love and so little um, uh, 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 value for their role. Um, but those that really understood their role and like, okay, wait, you're a partner for me. You're helping me. You're alleviating these things for me. They could be a really valuable member of the team. So I love, you've said a number of things here that I've loved, which is you, your analogy earlier, which I, which I freaking loved. And then design ops, which is another great terminology that I, that I learned today. One other thing that you talked about, again, it's not, it, it's not necessarily a skill set. Maybe it's a tool set is this deliberate word choice of, of the word ritual as opposed to meeting, right? I mean, I'm assuming ritual takes the place of a meeting or is a meeting, but it's a much more elevated meeting. Would you consider that to be a tool set, that a tool that you've implemented across your teams to help them think, or is that more of a mindset shift um, and, and why the word ritual? I, you've mentioned it a few times here. I feel that it's something we need to dig into. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's maybe both the mindset and a tool, a ritual, because in theory it could be done async. In many cases it is done async. Um, but a ritual is like essentially like a forcing function to make, to come to certain conclusions, make certain decisions and to often collate certain insights and data in advance, right? So that, that's why it's almost like a placeholder for these conversations to happen. Do they all have to happen in one meeting? Probably not. They could be in three separate meetings or they could be all done async or one is a meeting and the other's not. Like in the way that this one ritual I described to you between the paid and creative team has evolved is that the pulling of the data and the insight gathering and the conclusions actually happens async and is sent out in advance. And then the ideation and the discussions and the decision-making is what happens in a meeting brainstorm format, right? Um, I think, yeah, I like the word ritual because it, it, it suggests that you're going in with that mindset and you're creating that habit. Like you're always like, it's like coming up, you know, it's, it's a habit forming thing. And hopefully takes the pressure away from, oh my God, yet another meeting, right? It's like, I think there's something about the word meeting and the fact that we have so many meetings in our lives that it just, just comes with baggage. And I'm hoping to take that away to some degree with the nomenclature. But but honestly, like truth be told, like when the team comes to a place where everything is like nicely moving and you know, it can become very plug and play and maybe you don't need that meeting anymore. And it could just be like a couple of quick little async things on Slack or what have you and off you go. And that is a good enough ritual. So if we can shift gears slightly, still want to talk on the tools, tool set side, you know, you mentioned um, AI in passing, uh, whatever, a little bit earlier. Um, and I know you and I exchanged a couple of messages in the LinkedIn threads uh, recently around it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you see, or I guess a couple of things, and I'll leave it up to you which way you want to go. Either how does your team currently leverage these tools if they do, and or where do you see these tools playing? And I guess I'd say t taking the lens of 
that whole, um, you know, uh, commodity versus premium design versus creative, um, yeah. Landscape. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Such a big topic. I, you know, I'll, I'm not an expert by any means in this area. My hunch is that, so what we're already doing, I'll just start there is that we obviously use AI for inspiration on the team. Obviously it's like a second brain. It's like, it's like all those note-taking apps or anything. Like, why wouldn't you like, it's going to make your life easier. So, uh, you know, certainly like using mid journey or whatever to like kind of provide a bit of inspiration. Maybe that works as a mood board or works as like a, like a MVP to like, just like maybe like showcase like, Oh, this is kind of what it could look like. Right. So let's just call it inspiration. So AI, amazing, amazing for that. It's also great. Like as you write the prompts, it's actually a forcing function to decide amongst yourselves, like what is important to you. Um, like an example of that is we're, we're like in the midst of coming out with a piece of content that is around this idea of smart bets. How do you, how does, how do companies in this climate make smart bets? What does a framework look like? Blah, blah, blah. Providing some great evidence around how investing in growth can actually like bring longevity and, you know, most successful companies out there have done that in the, in past recessions, yada, yada. So how do you, how do you bring a piece of content like that to life? And, and what are some of the treatments to, help explain these concepts, some that are quite, uh, what's the word abstract, you know, some of these concepts can be quite abstract. And it's like, how do you, how do you visualize that and explain that? So the team is going to be using AI to like help mock some stuff up. And then we're going to like, look at it. And some of the stakeholders are going to look at it. We're probably going to have some feelings and thoughts on it. Some subjective, some objective, and, uh, you know, they haven't wasted a lot of time doing a heavy duty work because we've just used AI and, 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 and kind of gotten to an MVP. So that's like the most classic use case. I think that there's lots more stuff coming. I mean, already there's companies out there that do, you know, crazy stuff so they can, it's almost like SQL query meets creative, you know, so you could, you could actually say in the future and maybe even now, like, Hey, make this landing page better, but make it for enterprise customers, right? And it's like pulling all your data from your HubSpot, Salesforce, your win-loss, whatever gong, whatever tools you use, pulling that, making sense of that, and then applying those changes to a landing page. Like AI would be able to do that in the future. Oh, hey, make me a TikTok video that features a character from the office, but use the same template that I've done before, but with my social media manager. Boom, AI can do that probably in like, you know, three minutes or something. So it's like really the limitation would be computational power. And the, I, I think the ideation and the prompting would still have to come from a human, but AI could take us a long way, I think. I don't this know if that's take where us, you're going, but that, that's what I mean. we, we could easily have a whole separate conversation just around this. I'm going to yeah. ask you maybe one more question because I know we're, we've been chatting for a while already. Um, Philosophically, I'm curious on your thoughts. These are the conversations I, I'm, I'm having with a lot of folks, and I don't. I mean, I have my my thoughts, but where do you see this going from a like societal perspective? Meaning, at what point do we, as people, 
either start trusting this stuff equally or does it never get there? Because is part of it that, oh, wow, it was like this awesome team at whatever I want to make, like Geico created this funny commercial or yeah. whatever. I don't know why that one came to mind, but yeah. like, you know, it's, is that, is that part of the reason that makes us value the creative? And once that's gone, yeah. once we know it's made by machines, if you will, yeah. does our opinion of it change or does it stop having the impact that it did? Yeah. Great question. I suspect that the, how it's made is not going to matter eventually. I think that it's just going to be, it's sort of like, I mean, it's hard to put ourselves in our grandparents' shoes because obviously we weren't there, but I mean, just imagine them and their understanding of the internet, you know? And it's like, oh, Bob, my neighbor didn't tell me this, so but it's on the internet, it must not be true. Like, you know, it's like the same sort of thing happening here. Eventually, it's not going to matter whether human made it, AI made it, something in between made it. I mean, it's it's almost always going to be some combination, I think, for something to have breakout success, I suspect will always be a combination because humor is the hardest thing to master. I, I don't think that AI is going to fully be able to get there, for example, um, just that one emotion in particular. So, yeah, how it's made, I don't think it's going to matter long term. I think the bar is going to be substantially raised, right? So now there's still, you know, I was listening to this podcast with somebody I do not admire, but this one point I took away from Gary Vaynerchuk was that, (laughs) (laughs) was that he kind of said like, there's like this like supply and demand thing happening where there's not as many great creators as they are consumers. So I think what AI is going to do is equal that playing field. There's going to be as equal supply and equal demand. And Mm -hmm. that's just going to raise the bar. And so everyone's just going to have to try harder brands, people, everyone's just going to have to try harder to like stand out. And that's okay. That's like with anything really over time, you know, that's, yeah, yeah, that's just like evolution, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love your honesty and your and your insight here because, you know, this AI revolution is happening faster than we than we can even fathom and we're talking about it and we hear it everywhere and we see it everywhere and We even talked to our parents about it. We even said, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's uh so I appreciate I appreciate your candor. Let's talk about results because the master framework, again, just to reground ourselves and our listeners, it's all about mindsets, skill sets, tool sets, and lastly, results. And we've talked about a lot of different things on this show. Um, I'd love to hear, now you mentioned earlier a couple of the really insightful results that you have seen personally on your team with your, you know integrating your, your traditional marketing staff with your creative team, you mentioned a couple, you rattled off a couple of really interesting stats. I'm wondering if you can share those with us and any other insightful results that you either at Superside or for any of your clients have seen when they, um, as they have really embraced and adopted the idea of creative having a seat at the table. What, what have you seen either personally or outside with your clients? Yeah, with our with our customers, lots of different types of results. Um, I mean, we have a bunch of case studies on our website, but everything 
everything from helping to reduce uh, cost of acquisition all the way to um, launching something new and things going viral to, um, you know, just uh, I, I, in some cases, like, you know, th there's some like numbers around this, but some, some of the more rudimentary results have been things like reducing the cost per asset. Like Amazon is a funny example of this because their, their job to be done, if you want to use that framework, when they first came to us was the, the main thing that they wanted to use us for in the beginning was, can you reduce the cost of our assets on average of $1,500 down to 500? That's what we want. We're looking for a partner that can help us do that. And we were like, what's an asset? And they were like, an asset can be anything. And we were like, okay, but like, you know, there was like all these questions and it just seemed like such a non-creative job to be done. We were just like, what? Okay, sure. <laughs> but we did that. And they're very, very happy with that. And that's led to like other work being done and other business and whatnot and other teams inside Amazon using us. But that's how it started. And that was a huge win for them. That was a huge win for this design ops person who came to us, right? So that was her job. Her job was how do I get this cost down to one third of what it's costing us today? Wow. Um, yeah, so it, could, it it ranges in terms of like what the results are for our customers, but it's um, it's all some of the usual suspects, I would say plus these like funny anomalies. Uh, and then in, on our team specifically, like there've been a ton of like surprising little things and then stuff that we expected. I said earlier about how we've been able to reduce our CAC, like in some, in one case down to $12 from 90, which was like an amazing win. Obviously that took like a solid six, eight months of experimenting and whatnot, but we got there and that's like a huge savings for us. And now we can take that budget and deploy it elsewhere, but also like some surprising places. So one example of that is, we decided in uh, summer, in the summer of 2022 to invest hugely in YouTube. By then, YouTube shorts weren't out. So it was just like regular YouTube. And so we took like a search-based approach. We said, where do we start? You're not just going to randomly start creating videos and throwing it up on YouTube. Let's create YouTubes for very specific search queries that are happening inside YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, so that was our, of course, as long as it fit our you know content pillar structure, not any random stuff. So we kind of started there. We produced a ton of content. We were trying to ship at least four or five videos a month just to kind of have like a good repository and interlinking amongst all of those stories. And we started embedding them inside blog posts around similar topics. So the way our content marketing machine operates, just like anyone else's hopefully, is you have like six or seven pillars that you continually create content around no matter where it is. So whether it's blog, YouTube, Instagram, something else, you know, it's all, it's all the same topics and hopefully you interlink them in the nice way, create a flywheel around that. So we started inserting these YouTube videos inside these long form blog posts, not thinking anything of it, just saying, Hey, that's a good experience. Now they can get this content in video format, right? That's it. But that actually really helped with ranking for search on Google, which we didn't think of as a, it was like, just like a accidental byproduct. We were just like, what is happening here? How are we ranking here? And like our videos started showing up in the SERP at the top in for certain like niche topics and that skyrocketed. And we were just like, holy shit, right? So that took a lot of creative effort that actually required a staffing in the right way. We hired five people in the span of like three months or something, you know, have a crack video team now, right? Like we needed to build that whole machine to be able to power this. And then of course, get this like accidental benefit outside of it. But um, now that we're here, like it's actually like 
such a great flywheel. We do that. We power other offsite channels and other social media channels. Um, and we have a whole playbook where video is front and center. So that's just an example of how creative can completely change the game. That in and of itself could have been an entire episode that we talked about. I feel like, oh my God, I want to dig into that. that what an amazing uh, case study. I, actually, I have a video about this. Uh, you do? Okay. Last, I think last week. So I'll, I'll send that to you. Just have a watch. Like, I would love to have a watch and we'll include it in the show notes here because what a phenomenal case study. Uh, I, I would love to dig into that and, and what tremendous results that you've been able to generate, Amrita. I really applaud and admire you as a, a very high level senior ranking marketing individual. You are embracing the value of the creative team. You're embracing the skill sets and the tools and the mindsets that need to happen when you take creative, which is the art form, and marketing, which in many ways can be the science, the, the the numbers, the the data, and you're bringing these two halves together. Uh, I loved this episode. I learned a ton. I think our listeners are really going to value um, this episode as well. This is the first time. This is the first for the the Master Marketer Show in which we dig into this topic of creative. Um, so thank you, Amrita, for being here with us today. It goes without saying that clearly people should be checking out your YouTube channel for Superside. But um, if any of our listeners want, oh, wait a minute, I'm jumping the gun. We have to do the lightning round. I totally forgot. I'm scared. Okay. <laughs> Believe me, we need to do the lightning round. Amrita, we're going to try to stump you here with the lightning round. Oh, no, my I'm Lord. just kidding. Oh, lightning my round Lord. is a ton of fun. Um, all right. Are you ready for the lightning round? I'm never ready for these kinds of things, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll go easy on you. Um, Amrita, what is the main KPI you use to evaluate marketing success? Payback period. Payback period. Okay. That's a new one we haven't heard. Um, what's something new you're looking forward to testing this year? Ooh, our new positioning. We are trying to sow the seeds to create a new category and it's not easy to do that. And it, you know, you could do it for 10 years and still not have any success. So we're trying to like take a low stakes approach to it. So hoping to test the waters with a, with a few things around that. That is exciting. We should talk to you after the show. Um, we are in a similar position as well. And we're doing that for a number of clients. So this is exciting. Nice. Um, what's a marketing best practice you hate and would like to see disappear? Ooh, haha. Um, statistical significance on any test. It's just like, I, I get Bayesian theory and all the math geniuses listening to this podcast will probably like refute this, but I just think some of this stuff is common sense and you don't need statistical significance and you don't need a test to run forever and ever to get like that significance. You can kind of call it like halfway through. So yeah, I know people refute this, but that's just what I believe. Some of the things you just don't need to test in the first place, right? Some things you don't need to test in the first, exactly, exactly. But if you have chosen to go down that path, don't wait a month. Sometimes, you know, in two weeks. Love it. What is your least favorite business word or phrase? My least favorite. I think I say all of them. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, ooh. Um, 
I, you know what? You're stumping me here, but. Huh. What is the ROI on this? Mm. You know, that question. And like, and it's like ROI is like such a funny framework because for what time period, like what is the yardstick that you're using here? Like there's so much not included in that question. And it's a classic CFO type question. What is the ROI? It's like, what do you mean? Like, what is the ROI on a human? Like, what, how do I explain this to you? You know, it's like, we're, we're, we're planting a seed here. It's going to pay off like two years down the line. So, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah. What is the ROI on it is like the worst question. I just like, literally, like my blood starts boiling and my blood pressure starts going up. <laughs> uh, how do I? Okay. What is your favorite business or marketing book? Mm. Actually, like it's not a classic marketing book, but it's uh, it's the it's called Creativity Inc. It's so funny that we're talking about creative on the show, but that is it is written by the guy um, who was at who ran Pixar. But I'm totally blanking on his name right now. Uh, John Lasseter. John Lasseter. No, so it wasn't him. It was it, he's featured a lot in the book, but it was this other guy who wrote it. Um, oh, um, shoot. Why I, know, I, 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 this? I can't think of his name. I should right I just Google this. But he's yeah, the creative that. director or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think he was like maybe the chief creative officer or I forget. Yeah. Creativity Inc. Who wrote it? Edwin Catmull. That's Catmull, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ed Catmull. He was the, he was the co-founder. He, I think he retired. He retired. Yeah. So I think he wrote this like almost 10 years ago. I feel it's probably close to 10 years. That was actually a really good book. It, it, it's very aligned with your show because it's, it's a lot about mindsets and skill sets and specific things they did to cultivate certain things. Like he describes like boardroom meetings, for example, mm -hmm. and how they orchestrated that. And so much thought went into it. And, you know, he was also a big proponent of working together on site. Like he's not a big fan of remote work and things like that. It wasn't a thing back then. So he hasn't addressed it in a big way, but so much good stuff there. I, I feel like, I feel like a lot of like the seeds of how org design should be done was sown in from reading that book. Wow. So if you like this, maybe you've, maybe you heard this already, but there's a really great, uh, Business Wars series on uh, Pixar versus DreamWorks. Oh yeah, like that's the recent one. There's like four episodes or something. Okay. I just listened to it. It was, it was pretty cool. Cool. I'll Google that right now. All right, two more questions here, and then I'm going to give you a bonus. Um, what's the best marketing advice you've been given, or that you have given to others? I, I should talk about my own best advice. <laughs> uh, hmm. I, it's maybe I'll tell the story of something my boss said to me. It's not, it's not advice specifically, but it can be packaged as such. So when we were starting out Superside, and this is like, before we even had the .com domain, like we kind of had an inkling for what this product would look like, <clears throat> you know, who the buyer personas would be. We had some hypotheses based on a number of interviews I'd done, blah, 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 blah. And um, I was extremely stressed out. It was like the marketer number one on the team. And it had been like something like four or five months and we hadn't launched SuperSide. And I was having these like anxiety attacks of like, oh my God, not, not only do I need to launch, but what if no one gives a shit? You know, like that's what's going through my head. Like, what if we don't make a sale? Like no one cares. And my boss, the CEO said to me, don't worry about revenue. 
worry about your speed of learning. Hmm. Don't worry about money. Worry about how quickly you can come to some conclusions and learnings. Wow. That was super liberating because I think it changed the way that I prioritized on the things that I chose to work on. Yeah. So that is, that is a piece of advice that I would never imagine a startup founder would say to their marketer number one, right? That's, that's amazing. And he's an economist. So you would think he'd worry a lot about revenue, but. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think actually, I think that, I think that makes that background makes sense to me. Oh yeah. Because economists, I mean, they're all about how really that, that it is all about speed to learning and it's the, what is the insight you can pull out and how can you then leverage that to, to get ROI and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. that actually makes sense to me. Yeah. But that was, as a marketer, that was liberating because you're always under the gun, right? You're always like revenue, yeah. numbers, money. And, and yeah, he was just like, choose your tactics wisely. Choose it, and choose it in a way that you just have like lots of learnings. Even if you don't make a dollar, that's cool, but you learned a lot. And so that actually led to us launching the website. Like it was like literally a three-page website with some hacky pricing strategy, like literally hacked it all together. And then we just deployed a ton of paid because we wanted to learn in a month. And I just talked to everyone that came through the door. Mm -hmm. Every single person that came through the door, I talked to. And and wow. that told us so much. And I don't know that I would have done that if he hadn't said that to me. I love, I love that. And that's, a, that's very similar to what we do for clients, but we call it messaging acceleration, but that's literally it. It's like, okay, <laughs> let's just, let's get an MVP out there. Let's put paid dollars behind it. Let's drive the traffic. Let's check the engagement. Let's compare concepts and exactly. Iterate. Exactly. So smart. So smart. But it's crazy how people want to get everything so perfect and like, oh, no, let's like put it through a focus group and this and that. And it's like, no, just try it. Just see what yeah. happens. It, that is a liberating mindset. Wow. I almost feel like we have to have your 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 CEO on this show we too should. as well. That might be an interesting show. <laughs> um, okay. one, uh, Two more questions here. What's a favorite tool or platform that you are loving and using a lot right now? Me personally? Mm, I'd say, so we, it, it's, it's a very like sort of boring answer, but you know, there's a lot of these like second brain tools out there, like everything from Notion to, you know, old school Evernote and stuff like that. Um, I, I love the speed at which you can just fire up your Apple notes and I'm on the Apple ecosystem personally. So everything in my house is connected, like everything, all my devices, everything's in iCloud, whatever. And I'm that type of person that literally has like lots of shower thoughts and I need to write them down. So I keep my phone right there next to my shower. And sometimes I'll just be like, boop, 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 and I'll just put it down. And then I won't even look at it, but then like later at night or like the next day or a week later, it's just like easy to pull up. And there's something about like the load speed and the ease at which you can just like type something out and it's on all your devices. It's just, there's something beautiful about that. So it's not really, really like a tool like that everyone raves about. It's not, doesn't have the same architecture as Notion and whatever else, but it's just like the speed of it. I just love it. And I, and I use it for my own personal use case, which is quickly, quickly write down thoughts, like fleeting thoughts before they're, they're, they're gone. Yeah. 
I love that. I, I, uh, I, I use my Apple notes all the time too. I, I love that. Um, and if you have a pencil, by the way, I don't know if you're a fan of that, but I write a lot. I like the tactile feedback. So I actually write with my Apple pencil on my iPad a lot. There's I do I do have an Apple pencil. My problem with it is that charging it is a kind of a pain in the butt. I feel mm-hmm. like the charging mechanism could be better. That, that's right? why I live off my remarkable. Yeah. Ah, that's so smart. Yeah, that's actually. But so, what what ecosystem would that play with? It's just it, well. So it, it is integrated with my Google Drive, and I I have to I haven't spent the time to really make it as efficient as it can be, but I love paper notes mm-hmm. and I, but I hate, I love writing, I love handwritten notes. I hate paper because you mm-hmm. can never find anything. You can so never that, find anything. Yeah. That, that's why I like whatever your know, remarkable Apple pencil, whatever, right. That, that, that gives you the best <clears throat> of both. Yeah. And yeah. I, I doodle and mind map a lot. And then the pencil allows me to do that. So I'll have the, sh- you know, shower thought, put like a couple words down, then later on I'll come back to it and then I'll do like my own drawing, doodling, whatever. Okay, last question because I'm just curious. Um, Which B2B company do you, in your opinion, has some of the best creative today? Mm. So there's two that I think for the size of their marketing team and the company are killing it. Uh, and I and I actually would caveat by saying, so what, So I'll just say who they are. So I, I love Chili Piper this, and they have a funny name in itself and they do a lot of like little quirky things. So they're very video first. I see that they've really evangelized their employee base to post a lot of video and they're not the most high production video. The sound quality is bad. They often don't have animations in them. They're just like handheld iPhone, whatever, right? And that's cool. They've, they've done that. They've evangelized that. They actually get a lot of views and hits and conversation going with that approach. So that's create, that's creative done well, because like there's no such thing as quality anymore because it really depends on the platform. So they've done a good job there on, on the video side of things like the DIY lo-fi production value style video. And then I really like this company Gong, um, which is very specific to, I think they sell primarily to, revenue ops and sales enablement teams yeah but they also have like a interesting i don't know like i don't know if quirky is the right word but they kind of have like like it's like zingy like they have like this like uh it's a little irreverent yeah yeah like and and it kind of like it's like a some the way they also write the copy with the way that their creative is like the yes. purple ragged edges and stuff it's kind of like meant to like pack a punch like it's kind of yeah. like i'm just gonna punch you below the belt here a little bit and like you know wake you up from the slumber that you're in uh and like hey you need to pay attention like so i think they've kind of figured that out a little 100 yep. percent. i I'm glad that you said Gong. Gong is one of my favorite B2B brands. I am like a Gong fangirl. We are way too small at Proofpoint and we don't have nearly, you know, the number of salespeople to warrant the tool. It is, it is just, you know, we're not in their ICP, but I do admire and love them so much. In my, we, we had Udi as one of our, one of the first guests on our show too. Udi Lettergor, who was who who was the CMO. Now he's in a different role. He was yeah. one of our first guests nice. on our show. And in my Slack channel, 
I'm constantly saying, oh, guys, look at this and look at this and sharing what they're doing because I love it. So I, yeah. I love that you really it helps. It. Even if you're not a customer, you're a fan. And now you've spread the word about them to all right. your customers and audience and podcast listeners. Right. So right. That's, how, that's the power of like creative and brand. Right. It's that's like, the magic. Right. That is yep. the magic. Um, well, I jumped the gun earlier, but I'm going to re reiterate what I said. Emrita, I just love how you are um, combining these these mindsets and skill sets around your traditional marketing team and your creative team. You're bringing them together, two halves of a whole, bringing these two superpowers to your team and clearly to your customers at Superside. Um, tell us, how can uh, our listeners get a hold of you if they if they have questions or want to learn more about what you're doing? Sure. Yeah, I'm pretty online. Uh, you can find me easily on Twitter and LinkedIn and Rita Mather um, should come up if there's other Amrita Mathers out there. I don't know who they are. Um, <laughs> pretty, pretty, uh, unique name combination, I'd say. Um, and then, yeah, of course, if you're interested in leveraging creative for your scale up or your, you know, established company, then yeah, give superside.com a holler. Awesome. Awesome. Amrita, thank you so much for being on the show. This was just a, a delightful conversation. Thank wonderful. You learnings for I think Mike and I and I know for our listeners and um, everyone else thank you for joining us on this week's show of the Master Marketer episode of the Master Marketer show and we'll be back next week with another exciting conversation thanks for joining us on another episode of the Master Marketer show we'll be back next week with more B2B marketing success stories visit our website www.proofpoint.marketing for the full episode library complete with show notes, guides, templates, and more. Make sure to follow Proofpoint Marketing on LinkedIn and YouTube so you never miss an episode. Listen every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.